And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to the Success Story Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Clary. On this podcast, I have candid interviews with execs, celebrities, politicians, and other notable figures, all who have achieved success through both wins and losses, to learn more about their life, their ideas, and their insights. I sit down with leaders and mentors and unpack their story to help pass those lessons on to others through both experiences and tactical strategy for business professionals, entrepreneurs, and everyone in between. Without further ado, another episode of the Success Story Podcast. Thanks again for joining me. I have Alan Gannett with me. He is the founder of uh, TrackMaven, founder and CEO. It was a marketing analytics platform whose clients included Microsoft, Marriott, Saks Fifth, Home Depot, Honda, and GE. Uh, Now in 2018, it merged with Skyward, which is a leading content marketing platform. Um, So he is now, I guess, somewhat retired from, uh, from from the business he built. He has been named uh, a 30 under 30 on both Inc. and Forbes. Uh, He's a contributor for Fast Company, uh, released a book called The Creative Curve, which came out in June 2018. Um, The book was featured on CNBC, Forbes, numerous podcasts. It's been picked up and translated into seven other languages. And uh, the most important fact that I pulled out of his bio was that he was once a very pitiful runner-up on Wheel of Fortune, which made (laughs) me laugh when I read that. Um, but uh, thanks for thanks for sitting down. Um, excited to sort of understand your story. You've done a lot. You've accomplished a lot. You're still relatively young, so uh, I appreciate the uh, the insight and the few minutes you're giving. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no. So so like, walk me through. You know, you you built up a company. Uh, you exited. Uh, now you're just doing your thing. After writing one book, you're you said you're working on another one. Um, where did where did your where did your story come from? What what did you you know, how did you start TrackMaven? Let's start. There yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, so and TrackMaven was a fun, it ran it for six and a half years. We did this merger. And what's interesting about a merger, which is slightly different, we can talk more about it than like an exit is really, it's like the story sort of continues, right? There's some actual like practical differences that um, a mergers actually happen sort of startups more than I think sometimes some of the folklore is. But, um, you know, and so that was a really interesting experience too, is just staying on for a year and a half afterwards as part of the executive of a much bigger company. Um, but yeah, so my background is I started getting digital marketing when I was in college. Um, and so I went into college thinking that I wanted to become a lawyer. Um, and as I got into college and I started meeting people who were lawyers, I was like, I do not want to be a lawyer. Like there's never been a profession where more people are like, <laughs> don't do this. And I'm like, that is like, I, you know, I'll take you at your word. If you're do it, been doing it for 30 years and you say, don't do this, like God bless. Right. And so I was like, what am I going to do? What am I interested in? And at the time this was around, um, I entered college in 2009. 
And so this was around the time that the movie The Social Network came out. And there was some, there's a lot of excitement around sort of digital technology and social networks and all this stuff. Um, and I just was like, well, maybe it's tech. You know, I like the speed of it. I like how fast things are. And so I started a company in college that did digital marketing um, through a bunch of different web properties for colleges and universities. And we built Facebook apps and did all sorts of things. And it wasn't a very good business for a lot of reasons. Um, but I got really interested in digital marketing and how to build audiences online and not just the sort of micro tactical aspects, but also more macro sort of what's going on when you build an online community. Um, and so sort of through doing that in college, I sort of met a lot of people locally and I had a, I made a friend with this um, entrepreneur who's much older than me. Uh, I was like 10 years older than me. So I guess that's not that much older. And um, he recruited me to come be the CMO of his um, small venture back startup. He was doing a new startup. He had done a company before. And so I did that never having managed people before it was my first job. Um, and I sort of realized a few things like one, I don't like working for other people. So I was like a good life lesson to learn. Um, even though he was like great manager, I just don't like it. Uh, and then two, I learned that there was like a lot of problems in digital marketing at the time. This was 2012 where there was just like, not enough, like there was all this data being created, but the data wasn't actually very actionable. It was hard to gather. It was hard to turn into insight. And so track Maven. Um, started out of this desire um, to make data much more actionable for marketers. And so started the company in 2012. Um, and uh, at the time that we did our merger, it was about 50, 55 employees. Um, and so sort of had a really interesting, I think an interesting progression of like the company grew as I was also growing up. Um, and that was often for better and for worse. So that's, and just to clarify, I just want to make sure that I get the timeline right. Um, so that was with, with that entrepreneur or this is track maven was hundred percent on your own. Yeah. So that, I started as a solo entrepreneur. He okay. invested in it, but I started as a solo entrepreneur, a uh, solo founder, Yeah, which I, I think is probably like not the right decision looking back, but also not as wrong of a decision as I think people tend to, I think there's some like mythology around being a solo founder being impossible. I don't think it's impossible, right? Amazon has a solo founder and clearly it worked. I just think it's different um, and maybe less fun. Um, Stressful and, and, and just a ton of work and you don't have that, you don't have a resource like an outlet to. Yeah, sort of, and I think that one, of the things, one of the things as your company grows is that there's a sort of, they talk about like loneliness at the top. And I think when you have a co-founder, you have someone who is very much in the same sort of position as you you can have a level of frankness that is hard to have as the company gets bigger in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think it's more of like, it's less fun when you don't have a co-founder, a little bit more difficult, but I think the lack of sort of enjoyment is actually more important. So, so two things I'm curious about, and you can decide which one to, to go after first. <laughs> one of them, I'm just curious about your entrepreneurial journey and like sort of lessons you've learned as you grew up quite literally uh, as you were growing your company. But the other one I'm curious about, the problems that Track Maven was solving, and have we seen uh, the the marketing? I guess I don't know culture, atmosphere, nuances, status quo uh, progress to the point where those problems have been solved. Like what is, like what is the current state of marketing in twenty twenty? Yeah. and that's a loaded yeah, question. Well, so no, I can answer that one first. I and mean, that one to me is pretty easy. Where I mean, digital marketing has become 
uh, I believe the dictionary definition is, you know, cluster, you know, insert here, um, where it's basically there's all these channels and um, sort of what works in digital marketing is changing very rapidly and all the time. And so keeping up with that is incredibly time consuming and expensive. The result has been, you know, when I started TrackMaven, they do these marketing landscapes. Um, and at the time there was 150 marketing technology vendors. And the latest version I saw, and this is probably out of date because I haven't been you know, in this for a little bit, uh, there are 7,800 marketing technology vendors. So imagine that, right? From 2012 to today, going from 150 marketing technology vendors to 7,800. And so that fundamentally, I think, represents that digital marketing has just become completely chaotic and crazy. And now what you're seeing is that there is a move by a lot of marketers to consolidate tools to sort of come back to simplicity. Let's do less things, let's do them well, instead of trying to do everything. Um, because that's, you know, ends up with how you have 7,800 tools. And so the, the marketing landscape, I think, is a place where it's really hard to build a marketing technology company right now, because a lot of spend is moving towards more consolidated solutions. And it's really hard to build a consolidated solution as a startup. Versus if you think about, it, it's much easier to build a very specific feature and then over time grow. But it's hard to come in and say, I'm going to, you know, compete with Marketo or I'm going to compete with Sprinkler. Um, sorry, you were asking. Something. No, no, I was, that, was, that was actually going to be my question. So when you say like the, the quality, the, 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 the solutions that are basically the one-stop shop in, in the 2020 landscape, that is like a Marketo. And that's really what, that's what people are gravitating towards now. But well, you saw like. Yeah. They're all slightly different. So if you think about like what's interesting in marketing technology is there's these people building these horizontal solutions. And they're all coming from it from different origin points. So Marketo started sort of from email. Sprinkler started with really like social customer support. Um, there's folks like Cision who started with PR monitoring or just adding more and more things. And so everyone is sort of coming in from different angle, but they're all trying to build this very horizontal sort of marketing technology company. Now, so, so this is what you've seen sort of the current marketing landscape gravitate towards. Um, and one other thing that I wanted to understand just in terms of the current landscape, you mentioned that you want to simplify, you want to double down on what works, but you also mentioned, mentioned something earlier that I thought was very interesting. You always understood the macro or the community aspect. What is the higher level theme that companies are trying to tap into that works? Is it community? Is that the takeaway that people are trying to gravitate towards and understand? I'd, I'd say there's sort of two things. One is that ultimately all marketing is about building audience and converting that audience, right? And if, if you simplify everything to that, I think it makes it all much simpler where anytime there's a new channel, anytime there's a new tactic, it's really, is this either helping you build audience or is this helping me convert? That's sort of one macro point I'd make. The other macro point I make is that you can think about digital marketing as a sort of stock market for attention, where what people find is like how marketers build really valuable big brands is they tend to find sort of like asymmetry in the sort of cost to value of various channels. And as they find that, what happens is other marketers sort of see them doing that. They start trying it, works for them, and that you know bids up the price and it becomes more expensive. So you can take this with any sort of marketing tech. Think about content marketing. When content marketing first was starting, it was much, much easier to get attention because there's a lot less people. Now every startup you know has a blog, they're doing content marketing. So if you think about it as um, your consumer's attention sort of being the thing you're trying to get, well, it's much harder than it was before. Similarly, you see when anytime there's a new big social network that emerges, 
it's much easier to build an audience sort of early in the development of that social network. Think about TikTok right now versus trying to build an Instagram audience, right? And over time, as more people come into that tactic, it becomes more and more difficult. And so the result is that marketers who are successful from a long-term career perspective are very good at constantly doing what's working and experimenting with things that might be the next main thing because it's constantly shifting and because um, you know, big companies come into these channels and just make them prohibitively expensive at some point. And that is, I guess that is the, the strategy for somebody who's looking to make headway into the market. It's the, like you mentioned, so you, you double down on what is traditional and what works. And that's almost like the status quo. That's like what you have to do. It's like a, it's like a pay to play. You have to be good at the certain things that people are all good at. But then do you see more, I guess, startup or, or I guess, um, I don't know, people pushing the envelope on, on marketing in terms of trying to get things into new environments like TikTok? Is that more of a, a trend with companies that are trying to get some, some headway? Or is it something that traditional like Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies are, are making a move on as well? I think you tend to see it that um, sort of competitive or emerging companies tend to be better at that. But you're also seeing that good marketers at big companies are good at that too, right? It's not just about, um, it's not just about the small startups. And so I think that's an interesting, um, that's like an interesting point. And, um, you know, I think if you're a marketer and you're thinking about your career, like that is going to serve you really well, whether you're at a big company or small company, because if you're at a big company, you know, and you start experimenting on things that take off, you're going to get a lot of credit, a lot of reward, a lot of all these things for sort of being a little bit ahead of the curve. So I think no matter where you are as a marketer, it's valuable. But yeah, traditionally, the sort of emerging businesses are the ones who tend to be better at it. And, and talk to me about the first book that you wrote, The Creative Curve. What is that, what is that book about? What is that? Yeah, uh... so The Creative Curve, um, for those of you listening, I was just holding it up on the video. Um, but <laughs> it's, a book, it's a book all about this question that I got really fascinated with, which is like, can you learn to become more creative? And the reason I got really into it is that we were working with all these marketers and we, were, you know, we have all their data. And we would show them like, actually, there's a lot of like patterns to what your customers like. Um, and there's a lot of like systems thinking you can apply to how you create things, what stories you tell, what content you create. And yet when you talk to marketers, they'd say things like, well, I'm, I'm just not that creative. I can't do that. Or, you know, that's just not me. I have to hire an agency to help me with, you know, creative stuff. And I just, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I get kind of frustrated. I was just thought that was sort of all a ridiculous thing. I was like, no, like you could definitely do this. And so I started researching sort of like, people's opinions and views on creativity. And it sort of morphed over time to what ended up being this sort of three-year nights and weekend research project around diving into like, what is creativity really and how can we learn it? And so the first half of the book is looking at the history and science of creativity and a lot of the myths around creativity because there's a lot of myths. And the second half is I interviewed about 25 living creative greats ranging from Michelin star chefs to, you know, startup moguls like Alexis Ohanian to songwriters like Pasek and Paul, who did, you know, Greatest Showman and Darren Hanson and La La Land, right? And going through their stories and actually teasing out four patterns of things they did to enhance their creativity and explain what those things are and the science behind them. Um, and yeah, so the book is sort of part myth-busting, part actionable guide to creativity. Because I think that myth-busting piece is what's inhibiting a lot of the companies from getting into some of these emerging platforms and trying new things. And I think that that's probably an inhibitor 
what I'm thinking about, I'm not saying it clearly, but what I'm thinking about is when a company is saying, I don't know how to get onto TikTok. I don't know how to convert my product into something that can be communicated via a 60 second or 15 second video. So is that really what, you know, the creative curve breaking down these myths about how to become creative? Is that really something that can be parlayed into an effective marketing? I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely. You know, I mean, I'll give you one one small example. Um, One of the things I think really throws people for a loop is consumer trends. Like, why are certain things popular when they're popular? Right. Like that really gets people like it feels really sort of squishy and intangible. But the reality is we actually have all sorts of amazing sociology and psychology research that tells us exactly why consumer trends happen. Um, and like, I'll give you an example for one of the most prominent forces. It's um, as humans, we have these two sort of um, urges, I like to call them, that we've developed over time. One is that our brain has realized, it's sort of coded, that things that we see that are familiar represent safety, right? So if think about, you know, when you see your door for home, you're like, safe place. If you see a door that is the same physical door, but it's a place you've never been before, your brain's like, mm, what's behind that door? It could be potentially sort of risky. And so merely the fact that something's more familiar changes what we think about. It. And so familiarity breeds this idea of safety. As a result, we also tend to fear things that are unfamiliar because we're like, what's there? So that's one urge we have. The other urge that's really important to understand with consumer trends is that we've also developed this um, novelty-seeking behavior, where when our brain sees something new, it gives it what's called a novelty bonus, which is basically this sort of like perceived benefit to that, where it's like, okay, that piece of fruit that I've never seen before kind of looks like a weird strawberry. Oh, well, like I should try eating that because it might actually be delicious, right? It might be, you know, breakfast. Think about when people were hunter gatherers. So it's interesting. These two things are contradictions, right? Like literally, I just told you like familiarity breeds safety, novelty breeds pursuit. That doesn't make sense. Like those, those are contradictions. Mm -hmm. What it is, is our brain actually is constantly looking for things blend of the familiar and the novel. We like things that are free enough to be safe, but yet novel enough to be new. So think about if you saw a berry when you were a hunter-gatherer that was sort of like a weird strawberry, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to eat that. It's probably delicious. If you saw a berry that looked nothing like anything you've ever seen before, you might be like, a little bit too much, like it might be poisonous, I'm going to leave it be. And so as a result, what you find with consumer trends is that over and over again, there's all these studies that basically show that The things that people like, things that have one foot in the familiar and one foot in the new. And so if you think think about like Apple, I think Apple's a great example of this. Like Apple, we think about as like sort of radical innovation, but actually no, like that's not the story of Apple. If you look at uh, early 90s when they released their first tablet device, the Apple Newton, it was a spectacular failure. Uh, People were like, this is crazy. I don't want this. But then fast forward to today, the iPad, tablet computer is like wildly successful. And you think about it, like getting to the point where the iPad would be adopted by consumer was actually very incremental, right? So like the iPad was an iPhone without a phone. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone. The iPod was a better MP3 player, right? So like if you actually look at a lot of creative success stories, which you'll tend to find 
is that the ones that are successful and adopted by consumers tend to be much more incremental than we realize because we have those two urges, that pursuit of the familiar and that pursuit of the novel that coexist. I really, that's, that's very insightful um, and it makes a lot of sense. Now I'm just wondering for somebody who is bringing a new product to market, like you mentioned with, with Apple, the, the familiar and the novel do contradict. So how do you strike that balance when you're trying to, you know, go into a blue ocean, you don't have a reference point as a business? So yeah, but- great question. Um, and this is where a lot of entrepreneurs really get tricked because they build what is in their mind the most advanced or the best set of features, not actually the right thing to do. And in the book, I tell the story of um, Campus Network which was a social network started a month before Facebook at Columbia University by the student body president, um, went viral on Columbia's campus. Um, the co-founders of it took off, um, much like the Facebook co-founders did, in order to focus on it. Uh, for a while, it was growing. And what's interesting is Campus Network obviously did not work, right? We are not talking about, you know, um, Adam and Wayne who started it, We're talking about Mark Zuckerberg. And what's interesting, though, is that Campus Network actually had dramatically more features and a lot of features, which much later Facebook would have and lead to a lot of success. The activity feed, groups, events, a lot of these things, they had years before Facebook, years. And what's interesting is if you go back and you talk to the people who were involved in this, like I interviewed um, the folks from Campus Network and all stuff. It's like one of the things they point out is that one of the reasons Facebook won was that it was like incredible. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. 
I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Really simple. And so, you know, people at the time were using screen names and pseudonyms online. So like the amount of novelty they were willing to have was like just having their real name and photo in a directory, which is what Facebook started as, right? Like that was enough. The idea that you're also gonna have all this other stuff out about you was like not, no, like that was not something people were comfortable with. And you saw this where Facebook very slowly over time added more and more public um, features that made you more public as we as consumers became more comfortable with it. And I think it's just a really great example when it comes to technology businesses of it's so easy as a technology business to build the best features from a technical perspective or from a sort of meta, I don't know, like a first principles perspective. But like your job is not to just create something that has the most bells and whistles, but it's actually something that customers want to use. And so I think that's really important. This is why with the blue ocean, I think the thing that's important is usually start with either a wedge or a metaphor, right? Start with a much smaller feature set that people are ready for and over time expand or start with sort of like a metaphor or where you're doing something that um, maybe in a new space, but it's a familiar process and is letting you eventually grow into that blue ocean. But you can't just go and build the blue ocean. No one will want it. So this is something that I think is a great lesson for entrepreneurs. And I feel that um, I feel that a technical entrepreneur does not take this into consideration until much later on, which is, I'm, I'm not sure if you have an insight as to why so many businesses fail, but this seems like it could be a very blatant reason as to why so many businesses fail. Oh, 100%. I mean, there's all this interesting research around how um, successful serial entrepreneurs do something very different than first-time entrepreneurs. So successful serial entrepreneurs do something, um, they do solution-seeking, not problem-finding. Solution-seeking, not problem-finding. So what's the difference? Solution-seeking means they start with the problem. They're like, I want to solve cloud security. Then they go and do the work to figure out what that means, what that looks like, but they don't actually care from a technical perspective or a feature level what that looks like. They just want to solve the problem because they know that problem is ready to be solved. First time entrepreneurs, one of the biggest, most common mistakes is they do problem finding where they start with a solution that they essentially built for themselves. Like this is a great idea. And they look to try and find a market. And to me, this is like, this is like, this happens all the time. It's totally crazy. Because it's literally building for an audience of one. And you see this, people talk about, yeah, I'm trying to like find product market fit. But the reality is like, they're literally starting in a reverse. Like when you talk about finding product market fit, you should start with the market, not the product. 
right? You start with the market and then you work on building up the product to get that fit. If you start with the product, nine times out of 10, it is a horrendous, horrendous method of getting there. It's very inefficient, very expensive and wrought with failure. Now, when did you, you know, let's, let's bring it back to, to your life and your career and what you've learned, because this is not something that jumping into your first CMO gig, um, you would have realized. So how did you, how did you grow yourself? Like, how did you come to these conclusions? Where did you go to seek answers as you're growing your business to 55 and then merger? Cause that's not easy to do either. So you probably yes. made some mistakes at the beginning that a lot of people make. Oh, I've made mistakes all throughout it all the time. Like, you know, and, um, and so, you know, one of the things that I always think is sort of interesting is like, I, you know, I literally don't think of myself anywhere in that journey, even when we were sort of having some of our biggest highs, I never thought of myself as successful, um, which I think can often maybe be sort of psychologically, probably not healthy, right? Because there's a lack of contentment that comes from that. Um, but I think this idea of like always striving to be better is always very useful because um, for me, I always realized that like other people typically had like the best answers. And so I've always surrounded myself with like a lot of people in sort of a kitchen cabinet. I don't like the word mentor because I feel like it has a lot of like weird sort of overly formal connotations to it. Um, but the idea of like, I had a lot of people, some were formal advisory board members, some were board of directors, some were friends, some were older, some were younger, some were the same age, some had very different experiences. But I would probably have at any moment, like 15 people who I was in regular touch with for advice. Um, because like people have seen these problems before, like this is not actually like, you're not the first one to deal with like how to manage someone. Um, and so I found that that having that group of people that I could call upon was like, a dramatic game changer for being able to rapidly uh, grow as a CEO. Um, and I, I had like lots and lots of mistakes and I like messed up a lot of CEO, but I, a lot of, I would have messed up way more, you know, if I hadn't had all those people supporting me. Now you mentioned something about um, just being like self-aware of, of really just your own faults and, and your own shortcomings and sort of supplementing that with a, like a healthy group of call them mentors, call them just, you know, peers and whatnot. Well, how do you, how do you psychologically, this is, a, this is a tough question, but it's something that I think a lot of people struggle with. So I want to ask you, if you don't have an answer, it's fine. But how do you psychologically impose on yourself the will to say that I'm not good enough to, I don't know what I don't know. Is there an exercise that you went through? Is it a massive like screw up that just sort of shook you to your core that made you go outside? Because I think that that kicking off point where you, where you get the first mentor, I'm just going to use a word because I don't know what else to call it. You, you get that first mentor. That's like the string of, of your, that's the kickoff point for your success in the future. If you can open your mind to that concept. I think, I think there's a few things. I mean, one is like, I wouldn't actually necessarily agree. I'm not, you're not, maybe not saying this, but I wouldn't actually necessarily psychologically a great thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's a level of, um, I think a level of ambition ambition that tends to come from a place of like pain that's like not particularly great always right mm -hmm. so i think the idea of like viewing yourself as like less than um as a driver of behavior is like very effective i don't know if it's like great you know what i mean i don't know if i can say on a subjective level that that's like a good thing it, it is but i don't know if it's a good thing um i think in terms of maybe a more healthy way to think about like um learning to take feedback or advice um and I think it's maybe a little less clinical, so to speak, I guess would be like, I, I think we, I think reframing your work 
as a um, as the the process is your product, right? So your product is not whatever you're doing, right? If you want to be an entrepreneur, you're going to be creating different products and different different categories throughout your entire career. It's always going to change, um, and so you have to think about your process and how you develop an idea, how you build your business. That process, which is unique to you, right? Because everyone does it slightly differently. That is what you actually are working on as an entrepreneur. That process, that is your product. If you're building, if you're making sunscreen or if you're building software, the process is actually really, really fundamental and important. And so I think when you shift your thinking to thinking about the process as the product, it becomes much easier to completely reinvent that, to change it, to bring in outside opinions, outside voices, to, because you realize like that's actually your job, right? Your job isn't just make the best sunscreen. Your job is, how do I get better at this process? And I think um, when you're trying to constantly focus on the process, it makes everything, I think, much easier. Um, and I think it lowers sort of our, our very human defenses around, um, you know, change. I, well, I think the, the, the one word you mentioned was, uh, or the one thing you mentioned was like lowering the human defenses, which I think is, um, is, is a healthier way to put it than just, uh, than just thinking that you're not adequate enough as an entrepreneur. So the the pro if you understand that process and you know that your job is to understand that process not only will that open your mind up but that is i'm assuming the the secret to success in serial entrepreneurs because they are no longer building the product they are now focusing on the best they they have optimized and continuously focus on building out the process and then the the widget is just a, a result of that totally I, it's really well said i think one of the things that's important is that one of the things you realize when you start making, you know, when you're CEO and you end up sort of making CEO friends, like all this stuff is like, people are entrepreneurs and leaders for a lot of different reasons. A lot of them are not particularly like emotionally satisfying reasons. Um, some of them really are, right? Some of the people really love the coaching aspect and all this stuff, but some of them are like pretty dark, like right? come from a place of pain or like, um, there's a lot of people who grew up in some form of a broken home and are trying to sort of prove something to themselves and to society and maybe their parents. Right. And so I think it's really, really important to also think about like looking at um, your motivators and your behaviors and thinking about your motivators and being um, open to the idea that like, maybe it actually isn't like you think about life as a sort of satisfaction and contentment thing, right? Like maybe actually being an entrepreneur is not the thing that's going to best maximize your satisfaction and contentment because if you're sort of trying to solve something that's internally broken like it's not going to solve it right and you're just going to waste a bunch of time um and so i think that's something that i think we don't talk about a lot when it comes to entrepreneurship i think we always sort of assume that it's like this good thing for the person um but i know a lot of entrepreneurs who use it as sort of a distraction from dealing with like other internal personal issues if that makes sense it does. And I think that that's um, some of like, you know, the whole hustle porn issue was, it was highly criticized because being an entrepreneur is, is, is a lot more psychologically draining than I think a lot of people understand. And to, you know, you, I don't, I, I only reference Gary Vee because he just speaks, he, he's changed his tone and he's a very prolific speaker and he has a huge audience. So when, when he says something, people listen. So I think he's also changed his tone because he used to be very adamant about like, you know, work harder, like side hustle, this side hustle, that. And I think that it's the wrong message for people that just want to be happy and they have to balance and you can be quite successful and quite happy within an organization and you can be exceptionally brilliant and smart and bright and 
financially well off, still working for somebody, just like you mentioned, it may not be for everyone, but it could definitely be for some people. Totally. And what's interesting is one of the things this is actually really, I think is really fascinating. It's like, I have a lot of friends for entrepreneurs who have told me at various times things like, well, I don't want to like go to therapy because whatever is this broken part of me that drives me, I don't want that to go away. And I actually think that's like a much more common thing than people realize, especially among successful people is that like, they're like, I don't want to fix myself because whatever is broken seems to be causing some good sort of like external rewards. Um, and I have sort of two thoughts to that one is I think the external rewards are sort of fleeting, right? We're all going to die eventually. Right. And then two is that, um, what I've seen is that most of my friends who sort of do the work to become more peace with themselves, who maybe started on the side of not being at peace with themselves. Right. And that being a big ambition driver at that, they don't actually lose the ambition. Um, they're just much more self-aware and are better about taking care of themselves and like, are better about that stuff. And people actually, I think, are more attracted to the idea of working for those people because I think they actually come across as much more confident um, because they've done the self-inventory and the self-work and the self-assessment and all that kind of stuff, which ironically, I think makes people, I think knowing your weaknesses tends to make people view you as stronger. Um, And so I, I also tend to also push people on this idea of like, brokenness can often lead to a lot of ambition and energy and all this stuff. Um, but, you know, working on that brokenness isn't going to make you not ambitious. That's, it's, it's, it's something that I don't think is discussed enough. Um, and I think that it has to be increasingly discussed. So I appreciate you going there and bringing this up because I, I had no idea where we we're going to go with this chat, but I really, really appreciate that. And I think that um, as long as we normalize we normalize the the mindset of an entrepreneur so that somebody else who's listening or watching or whatever uh, hopefully will hear this and understand that um, perhaps, especially a solopreneur where they're not, they don't have a sounding board, right? Like you mentioned, it's tough. They, they, can, they can work on themselves and keep working on your business, but know that working on yourself is like always, always number one, like never, never yeah. an opportunity where it isn't number one. There's, you know, like you mentioned, like it's, we all die. We all die. So yeah. what's, What's the point in building something if you're, you're going to kill yourself doing it or if you're going to be yeah, sad or I know, depressed? Or... I know a lot of people who are sort of externally very successful who sort of have an epiphany at 35 or 40 um, that they have been sort of trying to solve their problem the completely wrong way. Um, and you know, to a person, I'm, I know they would all wish they could go back and sort of take a different course. Um, and so, yeah, I think you think you nailed it. Yeah, that's uh, that's it's tough to hear because it's always like grass is greener, right? It's always like that's all people think. And I know, like now, um, now with this podcast, and I still I do a whole bunch of stuff, but I work I work quite a bit, and I have my like in myself. I think about you know how much effort and how much energy I'm spending, and am I giving enough time to my family, and all this, all these things that I you know I'm trying to self aware, optimizing, and making sure that I don't have my professional hobbies take away from things that really matter, right? Which the people that are most important. And if somebody's worked a nine to five and, you know, they come in at nine o'clock and they clock out at five o'clock and they don't get an email after five o'clock and they're looking at somebody who perhaps has like, you know, two X or three X, the, 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 the wealth, it seems like, but it doesn't, it doesn't really translate like that. Like happiness has, a, has an intrinsic value that a lot of people don't realize it has until they've lost it. 
And I think yeah. that that's something that people really have to take note of. And I, I actually speak on, I speak about this on a much smaller scale, just in terms of like switching jobs for like 5K or 10K and, and how you better make sure that that switch is worth it. And that company and the culture and the leadership is all in line with like your ideology. Because if it isn't, you're not going to enjoy that 10K. You're going to wish you yeah. never had that 10K. So entrepreneurship <laughs> is like a whole other level, right? So very good. Um, <laughs> I want to, uh, I want to just, uh, you know, we kind of went off on uh, on, a, on a really good chat, but I want to I want to sort of tee it up with just a few like questions that I like to ask at the end, um, and one of them being, I'm just trying to think of which ones I want to ask because there's a lot of good stuff that we we aren't going to have time to do today and maybe sometime in the future. But one of the ones I like to ask is uh, just one life lesson that you've learned over your career that you would impart on somebody within a company or entrepreneur. I am, um, I'm, I started sort of working professionally when I was 18. Um, I sort of started doing college sort of quasi part-time. And so I'm 29 now, I've been working for 11 years, um, which is sort of a long time for a 29 year old. And I've been like amazed at the amount of people who I've met in the first four years of my job and working, um, that. I have now become in various sort of funny, the universe is a weird thing sort of way, huge parts of my life. Um, often people who I met and maybe like, like thought, oh, this is just a fleeting meeting, like literally may change the course of my life. And I think that long, that seeing that happen, I feel like you'd have had that happen when I was very young, because I think going forward, I'm very old idea that like any meet might like dramatically change your life but it also sort of speaks to the importance of i think like living with integrity and being honest and forthright and all these things because like look like people like you're not gonna they're not gonna disappear we live in a hyper connected digital world and so i think i think the idea of just like um the world life is very long term and you should Mm -hmm. sort of i think approach it with that mindset um and that perspective i think that's something that um the, the sooner you learn that, the better, for sure. That's a very important, that's a very important life lesson. Um, and I don't think that's discussed enough either. People make knee-jerk reactions at very young ages. Um, and I think that that can really impact you later on in life, especially like yeah. you mentioned, where you're just, such a, you kind of, yeah. yeah, you're a jerk to someone because yeah. you're having a bad day. And, you know, that's going to come back to haunt you because it's like I, I see on the, having hired a lot of people, just the amount of back channel references people do when hiring and like, the, the people they call you never would expect are the people they call. And so like, you know, yeah. life is very interconnected. <laughs> very good. Very good insight. Um, and uh, one more question, um, just a resource, a book, a podcast. It can't be your book, but another book that you would recommend to, or actually, well, two things. First of all, what, what book are you working on now? But I also want to get a resource uh, that you would uh, learn from or um, suggest other people check out. I'm like literally three weeks in the research for it. So it's too early to talk about it. And All right, the deal. book world is slow. So it'll come out in like 2022. Um, but in terms of books, uh, I mean, one of my favorite entrepreneurship books is The Hard Thing About Hard Things with Ben Horowitz, which is just, I think, the least romanticized of all the books on entrepreneurship. I've read a lot of them. Um, but I think it's the most practical. Like it has a chapter literally about like if you hired someone who was a friend of yours and now you have to fire them, what do you do? And like 
that's like the stuff that happens when you're running a company that like people, there isn't like a lot of books that sort of talk about that kind of stuff. Um, so that is by far my like number one suggestion. People are either uh, first time CEOs or first time entrepreneurs is to like read that book. Very good. And what's next? Last question for you. What's next for you? You know, um, I wanted to, I wanted to dig in a little bit more into this, but we, we went through a whole bunch of great stuff. So exited a company, wrote a book, you're writing another book. What do you want to do? You're, you're 29. So where do you want uh, to go? I, I do a lot of startup investing, which I find a lot of fun and enjoyment out of. Um, and so sort of for now, you know, be a full-time writer. I um, do a lot of speaking, obviously because of COVID that speaking is not a thing right now. So I've sort of um, told myself that COVID is a writing sabbatical, which sort of helps the mental framing of it all. Um, so once, once that ends, I think, you know, get back into speaking about the topic of my new book um, and keep investing in like really great entrepreneurs. Very good. I appreciate it. And where do people go to, to find you? Um, it's just Alan, A-L-L-E-N dot X-Y-Z. And there's links to book stuff and um, all sorts of good stuff, newsletter, social media, all the good stuff. That's all for today. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of the Success Story Podcast. You can download or stream this podcast wherever podcasts are available, including iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many others. You can also watch this podcast on YouTube. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, and peers. Please leave us a rating on iTunes. It takes about 30 seconds as it allows other people to find our podcast and lets our amazing guests reach even more people with their message. And remember, any rating is fine as long as it contains five stars. I'm Scott Clary from the Success Story Podcast, signing off. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. 
I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours? That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professional to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay.